0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Holden Shepherd. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now today I'm joined on the show by Holden Shepherd. Holden's debut novel Invisible Boys was an absolute sensation, and today he's joining us, he's got a new novel, it's called The Brink. School's out, and Perth's levers are descending on the coast. Leonardo doesn't love that he's found himself in the back of Jared's four-wheel drive. They haven't been friends since high school. But since Leonardo's so-called friends ditched on him, he hasn't got much choice. So now he's stuck with Jared, Mason, Valentina, and just about every other person who made his life hell at high school. When their holiday accommodation decides to turn leavers away, the group are in search of a new place to party. The Brink is an isolated community, famous for its insularity, not known for welcoming outsiders. But when Ryan gets them an inn with a guy called Machete Max, who rents them some cabins, it all seems too good to be true. A week on Brink Island, no adults, no rules, no consequences. But you know what they say about things that are too good to be true. And there are always consequences. Join me as we discover Holden Shepherd's The Brink. Yeah, mate. How are you? I'm good, mate. That's just my standard salute while it's doing the connecting to audio.
1: <laughs> it's good because it does feel that like, you know I, I, people see me before they can hear me, so I'm kind of. That's <laughs> nice to have a little <laughs> signal.
0: I mean, after is it two or two hundred years we've been doing this sort of thing in the pandemic? Um, I'm actually. <laughs> it's actually weirder when people have like some super fast connection and it's straight on to audio, and you get me, you'll hear me, and you'll be going like, test, 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 testing, one, two, testing, one, two, and they're looking at me like... Thanks <laughs> yeah. heaps for jumping on so early.
1: No worries at all. I'm sorry I'm a couple minutes late. I was, you know, I kind of was looking at my phone waiting for it to ring, and then I remembered, no, 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 it's a Zoom. <laughs> so, it's all ah, my bad. It's all
0: sweet, it's all sweet. Are you off to work after this? Are we on a much of a time budget, or...? Um, uh, no, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay for probably about 25 minutes max. Let's jump, let's jump straight in then. Cause I've got, I've got questions. You've got answers. Um, yeah, this is feeling like a pop song. Um, yeah, no, I've got, <laughs> I've got so much, I've got so much stuff that I want to ask you about. Epic. No, cool. Amazing. Um, oh, I right.
1: appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me man. No, no, I'm really excited to be talking about this. All right, here we go. Holden is an award-winning writer from WA. His debut novel, Invisible Boys, won a slew of awards, including the WA Premier's Book Prize for an Emerging Writer. Holden's joining us with his new novel. It's called The Brink. Holden, welcome, mate. This is so great to have you here.
1: G'day, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me, mate. I appreciate it.
0: Now, I want to set this up for people, and we're at the right time of the year, I absolutely feel, because school's out and Perth's leavers are descending on the coast. Leonardo doesn't love that he's found himself in the back of Jared's four-wheel drive. They haven't been friends since high school started, but since Leonardo's so-called friends ditched on him, he hasn't got much choice. So now he's stuck with Jared, Mason, Valentina, and just about every other person who made his life hell at high school. When their holiday accommodation decides to turn levers away, the group are in search of a new place to party. The Brink is an isolated community, famous for its insularity and not known for welcoming outsiders. But when Ryan gets him in with a guy called Machete Max, who rents him some cabins, it all seems too good to be true. A week on Brink Island, no adults, no rules, no consequences. But you know what they say about things that are too good to be true, and there are always consequences all right hold on mate. the setup for the brink is iconic we've got a group of teens alone on a desert island or a deserted island sort of <laughs> i've been quietly referring to this myself as love island meets lord of the flies <laughs> and um <laughs> like <laughs> in a similar way like it, it's got both this voyeuristic charm and these deeper social insights i'm really curious where this story began for you
1: yeah. I, um, I mean, to be honest, this story began as like a really crappy version of itself. Like it, it started, this was the first thing I ever started writing as like an adult author after I graduated uni and it began as like a Matthew Riley type, like action adventure. Mm. Um, it was like a full on, um, you know, a bus exploded in a hail of bullets at, uh, at Cadbury, which is a servo between Perth and Durian Bay. And, um, you know, these five people had escaped from it and that part of the story never kind of continued. Uh, But the five people were, you know, versions of Leonardo, Kaya Mason, Jared and Belle. And so these characters had always stayed with me, this this group of friends who had known each other in a former life and then were now starting to fall apart. And I think it, it came from my own experience of kind of, you know, constructing a certain persona to survive high school myself. And then when high school finishes, you're kind of performing this persona and no one's watching anymore. You know, you know, you're performing for an audience of no one. And it's a confronting moment. Mm -hmm. I think leavers and schoolies or whatever we call it in different parts of the country. um, It's exciting, but it's also this really terrifying precipice where you're like, oh, this is the end of who I used to be. And I don't really know who I am. So, so, that's where this book kind of, certainly the personal internal stuff, that's where it comes from.
0: I want to get to that. But before we do, I'm going to pop a bookmark in the characters because you also have this incredible setting. And I think it really informs, like, it, it, it informs the action visually. This is a very visual, visceral novel. But I think it also has a lot to do with the way the plot's going to unfold. You acknowledge that the Brink and Brink Island don't, exist in the sense of you know hey let's book a trip to wa now that we can all cross the country but what what does that sort of setting and place do for you how did you orient the story with this kind of remote island
1: um, yeah i think it's a good observation that this is not a tourism campaign for wa you know like <laughs> i you know <laughs> I think people should be booking a ticket to the brink um Uh, Yeah, like this, for anyone who knows WA or has has driven around the coastline, like there are places similar to uh, what I've described uh, with Brink Island, where, you know, there are these little dwellings and these little shack communities around the coast that are not authorised. They're not kind of, they're not towns, they're not meant to be there, but they're kind of tolerated and they've been set up for decades. Um, And I I personally have driven past them, uh, a lot of them, between my hometown of Geraldton and where I now live in Perth. So it's about a four hour road trip and you kind of drive past a lot of these little shacks along the way. And it's really remote otherwise. Mm. And, you know, I've broken down on that road before and it's extremely isolating when you, you know, your car is pulled up in the middle of nowhere. It's about, you know, 80 kilometers to any kind of nearby tiny town. And you're kind of left going, Hmm, something went really wrong here. Nobody would, nobody would help. Nobody would hear me scream. Um, this is, you know, a Wolf Creek kind of place. And uh, so, you know, I mean, my book's not a horror story, but that, that kind of always inspired me, that sense that there is so much isolation in these tiny communities. Imagine if you put a whole bunch of, you know, angry, drunk, horny teenagers <laughs> in a place like this, um, things would go kaboom. Like it would just be a powder keg for something to go badly wrong and, and for everything to unravel for them. So, um, So the setting is something I know really well. Um, and I, I don't know for sure. I expect there are places similar to this around the country. I don't. Uh, I can't imagine it's only WA that has these places, but I don't know for sure.
0: You set up this like this really fascinating juxtaposition with these levers who. Uh, You know, as you say, they're on the brink of kind of negotiating an adult identity. But what's on their mind is, I guess, I want to put in scare quotes, freedom. And they have this idea of freedom and they kind of see the the brink as the the apotheosis of of freedom. Like this is, these people have done it. But then (laughs) like... I almost want to bleep you saying it's not a horror movie, be, a horror story before because I'm like it could have been. There are moments where you are just like this is going south. Like they start <laughs> to learn, and the, even the people in the community, the, the the contact that we get, we learn that freedom isn't isn't freedom to do anything. Freedom actually involves a, its own complicated set of rules. Was that really interesting for you to confront, like as you were kind of bringing things
1: together? Yeah, and I, I think freedom in our heads is almost never how freedom plays out, mm. you, you know, especially after high school. Like, you know, I certainly thought, I you know, I don't know what I thought Leavers week would be like, you know, school is week. I, I think I thought it would be just absolute debauchery and, you know, you're a bunch of 17 year olds from a Catholic high school in a little coastal town. You yeah. know, it's, it's not going to be kind of, I don't know, the playboy Mansion, but, but in your head, you really build it up as something incredible. Um no free, you know, freedom doesn't represent itself that way. And, um, there were early versions of this story, you know, early drafts where it probably was a little bit more, I'm not going to say horror cause I, I don't like horror and I don't think I can do it. Um, but there were more bodies dropping, you know, <laughs> there was a version where like people were getting moaned out. Mm. Um, and I, I took that away because I, it became more genre. than what this version is, which is I I wanted it to have that sense of foreboding and that sense of like, well, when there's no rules, actually things can go terribly wrong. You know, like the Lord of the Flies aspect of this book is really, you know, when no one is in charge, someone will step up to fill that void and that person might not be very nice. You know, like the the kind of the locking of bullhorns between Jared and, and Ryan in this book, you know, the two kind of alpha males who are just like, Ragey, you know, bastards. <laughs> um, that's that's real. I think those kind of personalities in a vacuum will mm. try to rise to to the forefront and dominate. So I think I just wanted to depict what happens in social group settings. You know, I, I think we've all lived through those. I wanna
0: I, I actually really want to get to Jared and Ryan, but I, I think it's probably more important to set up your point of view narrators. So we've we've got Leonardo, he's a he's a geek feeling out of place with the cool kids. We've got Kea. she's desperately seeking some sort of firm ground with a friendship group. And then you've got Mason who's who's a star footballer who's kind of chafing at the confines. Of that image, and I wanted to really lean into the stereotypes there with my kind of one-line description because it's exactly those stereotypes that each of the characters they're they're fighting against. And I mean, the the action is incredible. I will not sell your action short, but the internal, like that sort of point point of view, was what really gripped me. Can you tell me though about trying to carve out space? In these tried and tested kind of teen archetypes, you know, you've got, we've got the archetype, we can recognise, I guess, their surface, their mask, and then what's going on in finding their own
1: identity? Yeah, this is such a good question. And I think, I think a lot of us in high school, but also then it carries through to adulthood, we... Uh, we are uh, assigned a certain role in our social group or our family group or or sc- at school or whatever. And it kind of just keeps becoming more real, you know, like year on year, it's like, okay, cool. So I'm the smart, geeky guy and that's who I am. And yeah. it, it starts to actually dictate mm. the future rather than actually describe who you are. Mm. And uh, so that's, you know, I, I was probably like Leonardo when I was in high school. Like I was very much... I mean, terribly anxious, terrified, um, you know, cringely and, and you know, but honestly, you know, wanting to be more confident and wanting to be tougher, but just being like this terrified kid who was just scared of everyone and scared of his own brain. Um, so, like, how do you break out of that? How do you bust out of mm. the person you've built up for the world? It's actually a very difficult thing to do. Mm. And I, I think this book shedding a light on it is actually, you know, some people have gone well, you've leaned into the cringe. And I'm like, yeah, I have. Cause I don't think there's any way to talk about identity without shining a light on how difficult it is. You know, yeah. the moment someone like Leonardo says, Hey, I want to be a tough guy. Or Kaya says, I want to be a bad girl. Or, you know, Mason says, Hey, I like, I like blokes instead of chicks. Yeah. Like everyone around them is going to go, what? That's not you. You can't stay in your lane, you know, stay in your box. That yeah. This is not the person we know. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I faced initially when I kind of left high school and I came out and, you know, I changed, I became more comfortable with myself. Mm. But people saw it as like, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, no. This is not the nerd that we we used to know. Like, get back in your box, man.
0: You get this, like, you, and it's, it's like so many things in life where you do all the internal work and then you kind of say, hey, I've, here's this finished package that I've kind of, and then suddenly you realise everyone else is freaking out about the work they have to do to make space <laughs> for this, and and they, some, sometimes people just go, I don't want to do that work, actually. It's a lot easier for me to just treat you like I've always treated you.
1: Mm, mm. And, and, you know, sometimes friendships are not really friendships. You know, people aren't actually, you know, like the best friendships I've ever had is where you kind of, you know, you rock up for a catch up with that person and you're like, cool, I'm like this now, you know, you know yeah. I've changed in some way and, and your mate just goes, cool, <laughs> good for you, that's really nice. Um, and now let's watch the food or let's have a drink or whatever, but there's actually no consequence. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the kind of friendships maybe I've described in the brink between these friends is, is some of what I've experienced where you kind of go, Hey, this is who I am you now. People are like, nah, no, 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 I don't like this at all. This is not, you know, I, I liked you when you would just shut up and listen to me talking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, why are you talking? This is really annoying.
0: Yeah. You do like uh, as I was reading, I I was doing this thing where I was kind of like, like, I loved I loved your point of view characters. I also sort of was going, why did why did Holden choose these three? There's a really important reason why you've chosen those three, of course, and we can't say anything because we don't want to spoil, but. Mm. It also occurred to me, it felt like there was a little bit of a sacrifice in only having those three points of view, that there was a lot of character development in the others that you could only hint at. And I actually really loved these unknowable elements. It reminded me that we seldom know everything, even with our closest friends. That's really highlighted in the friendship between Mason and Jared. And what I what I wanted, like almost a hypothetical here for you, do you think it's possible, could it have been possible for Jared and Mason to treat each other with more openness and generosity? Or you used the term alpha before referring to Jared and Ryan. Does the distance, do those kind of masks that we're forced to wear, do they always have to come between us?
1: It's a great question Um you know, yeah, and I probably have used the word alpha for a lot of the the male characters in this book. I mean, like Mason, c- considers himself, you know, an alpha male. Um, it's like a
0: mask we yeah. put on. I mean, I, I don't know that I pret- really agree that it exists out there, but it, it 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 only has to exist for the person who says this is who I am, and their behaviour will be shaped by that.
1: I think that's a really good observation. And I think, and I think the reason I've given it to Mason specifically, Mm. apart from the fact that I wanted to explore this sense of, you know, more traditional blokey masculinity in a homosexual man, which is what I want to do with Mason. Mm. Um, But also to me, Mason's version of it is maybe a, maybe a slightly nicer version of it. You know, like Mm. Jared and Ryan's sense of being a guy is, is dominating other people or, or winning or being violent. And, you know, that's, I mean, that ends terribly for, well, I'm not going to say how it ends, Mm. um, but, you know, it's not, um, it's not something I think anyone should be aspiring to. Um, And it does get in the way of actual connection. Like I think Jared and Mason, if Jared hadn't had that sense, or if Mason hadn't had that sense that he has to be a certain way to be liked by Jared, you know, I don't think uh, their relationship would have gone south the way it did. Um, without kind of revealing too much about the book. Mm. Um, You know, there was a version of this... You know, as I said, there's a lot of versions of this book where it was different. There was a version where I had written five point-of-view characters. And so it was Leonardo Kaya Mason and then the other two were Val and Jared. Mm. Um, And you got to see specifically what was in Jared's head, um, including around the Mason stuff. But I I chose to remove it because it just it gave too much insight into Jared in a way that we probably didn't need. And it was a little bit, you know, choked out Mason's story anyway. Um, But I don't think we needed to know what was in Jared's head. I think we can assume that he's a bit messed up. Yeah. Um, as a person, and, he, and we know he's angry, so I don't know if we have to see it from his point of view.
0: And just a just a, a nod to you, um, you know, Holden. Right now, we're speaking in really quite oblique terms because we're skirting around big moments in the text. But just a nod to you that you do have this really subtle moment. It's from Kaya's POV where you show us enough of what's going on for Jared that it makes it like it. It, it everything turns like. I was not a fan of Jared because I could see, you know, kind of, it, even if even if he was messed up inside, his projections were messing everyone else up. And you show us something that, that turns and suddenly the entire final third of the book, it changes because we have this different understanding. And I think that was, it's quite masterful the way you do that. We didn't need Jared's POV. That was enough.
1: Yeah, you yeah, know, less is more sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's a, thank you. Like, I think that's a, probably a good example of, you know, all you need is probably a line or two to know that this character is, is badly in need of something, you know, like whenever I see someone violent or aggressive, I mean, you know, unless they're coming at me in which, I, <laughs> in which case I'm like, get the hell away from me. Yeah. Um, but if, you know, if I'm, if I'm seeing someone like that, my, my thought is like at some point for you, your boundaries have been crossed so many times that being able to say the word, no, isn't enough. And so you've had to actually become someone who is, is, you know, verbally aggressive or physically aggressive in order to, to assert a boundary, um, which is wrong. You can't like, you can't hurt people. Uh, but it kind of explains why Jared is the way he is. Mm. Like, I just think there is a sense of like, he's just been run all over by everyone in his, in his life. Um, and he looks like this kind of image of privilege, which he kind of is, you know, he is the golden boy and he's kind of got everything laid out for him. Um, but he also ha- is severely emotionally
0: malnourished yeah. and I wanted that to come across. His type of freedom, I guess, comes with its own strictures. It does. And he, he's not in charge, you know? Yeah. I need to go off script for a moment here. The fact that you've told us there was once a POV for Val has got me really interested in what you were doing, I guess, in the the way the, the groups sort of separate. And we do kind of... We kind of have a core group of the blokes. We kind of have a core group of the girls. And Kaya's... Kaya's story feels a lot like it's it's dealing with um, family expectations, which is interesting because it's all by proxy, her family are not on the island. But I'm also interested in the way you explored um, through Val that whole you know we the, the girls will talk it out and that's somehow a, a healthier like you know the stereotype is that's a healthier way than men are dealing with things but you show a really toxic side of that and val val is integral to it i don't know that i necessarily wanted that internal point of view like um because she's she she's a, a, an interesting chaos machine
1: <laughs> oh that might be my favorite description of val so far interesting <laughs> chaos machine um you know, Val, you know, I, I think that's why Val's point of view chapters got cut as well is because maybe it humanized her too much or it, it, it just showed a huge sadness to her. And, you know, again, we can kind of glimpse that enough by, by what happens and the kind of tiny little shards of insight that we get mm. into her home life and into how insecure she is that, you know, that's quite enough to know what's going on with her. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, like, I i just, I, I'm glad that's observed because I do think it's better to talk things out. Like I do think it's a much healthier way of being. Mm. Um, and, you know, generally girls are more emotionally literate than guys are, which, which sucks. Like, you know, we should be, <laughs> we need to learn how to do that because yeah. otherwise we just die mm. um, without putting too fine a point on it. Um, but so, so yes, that does happen. Um, but then I've also, you know, I've grown up with, you know, a lot of sisters and, and female cousins and female friends and, you know, you, you can kind of see how like wonderfully nurturing and expressive environment can be, but also like, you know, if, if the group decides that they don't like you um, your vulnerability can be the thing that they use to destroy you. Yeah, And uh, that's kind of what Val you know, they can weaponize anyone's revelations and be like, cool, now I've got you and I'm going to, Turn that around and use that, at, you know, at any moment. Um, you know, I've seen that unfold, and I thought, you know, it's just so human to be violent. You know, you've got the Jareds and the Ryans who are whacking each other with cricket bats, um, but you've got the Valentinas and the and the Taylors who are like, I know how to destroy this person just using words and a rumor and a bit of gossip.
0: Mm. I want to I want to get straight to um, something that we've we've already brought up, and that's. The area and I guess the depictions of masculinity because both Invisible Boys and The Brink they interrogate masculinity, but they don't they don't preach they don't demonize the ways young men are trying to navigate that journey into manhood. I mean, I'd, I'd even argue at the end of The Brink you leave us in both Leonardo and Mason with two guys on a on a journey. They've still got a lot to learn. Is there a is there a this is a bit of a furphy, but is there a right way to be a man and? No, there isn't. Do we focus too much on that as an archetype?
1: Mm, um, I mean, you know, yeah, you've answered the question. Like, There's no right way to be a man um, at all. Um, and I think, you know, and, and there's no right way to be a gay man, specifically with Mason. Um, and that's kind of why I brought in Braden, kind of for, for both, for both the, just the overall masculinity question and the question about being kind of a masculine homosexual. Is that, you know, Braden isn't that, you know, Braden's quite openly and happily, you know, he's a little bit effeminate, he's a little bit camp, he's, he's that kind of gay guy who, um, you yeah. know, is okay with it and um, that's who he is. Yeah. And I think I wanted to make the point without kind of hitting a hammer over everyone's heads, um, that when I talk about these kind of masculine gay characters or, or even someone like Leonardo who isn't tough at all and isn't blokey but really yeah. wants to be. Um, I'm not I'm not just here valorizing that. Like, I'm not just here saying that's the only way to do it. Um, so I want to kind of be like, here, here's Braden and he's fine. Mm. Um, and here's Feza and he's fine, you know, and he's kind of laid back stoner vibe. Like, that's cool. Um, but I wanted to show that, you know, I, I think there are qualities within, you know, forms of traditional masculinity that are still things boys aspire to and relate to without necessarily being kind of, stoicism or violence or dominance or aggression, you know, there, there are qualities there that um, are really nice, you know, that, that kind of larrikinism or that camaraderie um, that are, are, I think are really healthy. So I think that's what I wanted to tease out with Leonardo and with Mason um, in this book is like, what are the nice parts of that? And, you know, how can we integrate that with a sense that also, you know, vulnerability is really important and emotional intelligence is really important.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I liked that both Leonardo and Mason in their own way were focused on this idea of, of what being a man is as it's almost like a destination. I'm going to get there. And mm. I don't, I don't, I personally, I, my reading is that they don't, they haven't understood at the end of the book that that's wrong, but it's not a destination it's a journey but they're inadvertently they're on that journey anyway the fact that they realize that you know there is no destination at the end and braden I, one thing i did like about him is you show us again really subtly a toughness like you know braden does not exude toughness but then there are moments where he's having a you know a heart to heart with someone and he kind of just says hang on a sec, you, you don't think that's a part of me? Wait, no, just because I'm not showing it on my face doesn't mean... And, it, you know, if of anyone, he's probably the one who would be, uh, I guess, immune to Valentina's chaos because he's he's got that toughness just because he doesn't feel the need to kind of put it out to the world all the time.
1: Mm, it's And, you know, that toughness can exist in any, any character. It exists in Kaya, actually. I think Kaya is probably, you know the kind of toughest one by the end, you know, like she really takes charge and um, isn't afraid to be the kind of practical, no, no nonsense yeah. person. Um, so I think that exists in all of them. Um, and I think your observation about the journey thing, you know, that, that's kind of, to me, you know, I grew up this sense and it still prevails. And, you know, sometimes I still feel it, that, you know, in order to be recognized as a man, you need, you know, broader fraternity, you know, you need the recognition of other men that you're, Good enough, or that you're man enough, or whatever. Like that's that's the quality that's required. And I think Leonardo and Mason both get to a point at the end. You know, Leonardo is saying, you know, stay molten. You know, stay stay exactly who you want to be and be who you want to be. Masons is about self-definition. You know, mm. I, you know, Pluto is a planet, if it wants to be. Um, and I think that's where I've come. I, that's where I came to in my own life was kind of like, you know, what, I can't I can't get here and personally rewrite the script of manhood for every straight guy who's out there who who's gonna think oh you're a homo well that's it you're out of you're out of fraternity goodbye mm. like I can't fix that and I can't change that um I can only own my own my own self and my own attitude. you know I can say well look I feel like a guy I feel like a real man so I'm just gonna own that myself and you know if other people have a problem it's really none of my business um uh, to me, that's a healthier approach than kind of forever trying to seek their approval.
0: Yeah, if you could change one thing, like what would you what would you want to change about the way we are talking about masculinity? What would you What would you want to do differently if you were looking at, you know, a Leonardo, a Mason? Um, you know,
1: hey guys, mm-hmm. I can
0: see you're on a journey. You know, maybe here's a little
1: bit of the roadmap. Yeah, I, like I, I really would like the starting point to be. Mm-hmm not punitive Mm. and not shaming and kind of like a neutral, a a neutral glance at a human being and just be like, cool, who are you as a person and not kind of projecting anything inherently negative onto uh, a young man or a young gay man or a young straight man or whoever, you know, or a young trans man. Like it it really doesn't matter. But these are all kinds of boys that I I feel in different ways. We're shaming uh, a lot of the time. Um, You know, I've I've kind of pushed back against certain terms around toxic masculinity, for example, because I don't like the term um, because I I feel that it projects something negative inherently. You know, my books are just about masculinity. And so I'm trying to just get the point across that, you know, people can have other conversations around this topic. The conversations I'm trying to have are ones where we're already at a starting point where, like, it's okay to be who you are. It's okay to be, you know, there's no right way to be a guy. Um, All kinds of guys are valid. So if we have that as our nice starting point, what does that lead us into for a conversation? I think that's a nicer starting point, um, especially for young men to engage them in this conversation. Um, so, yeah, I'd really like us to get to that point where, you know, there's no right way to be a guy. You can be a Braden, you can be a Mason, you can be a Leonardo, you can even be a Jared, although, you know, you might need therapy if you're a Jared. Um, but, you know, th- there's nothing wrong with being kind of anywhere along the spectrum of, of masculinity. Um I'd like I'd like that to be kind of more readily embraced. Um and then you know, just that starting point of not shaming anyone, I think would be really nice.
0: That feels like an amazing way to end this conversation and I guess begin so many others. Holden, I really want to say thank you again for taking the time for this conversation. Like it's it's so fantastic to share the brink. But more than that, like to you know, you've you've packed up this dynamite package of incredible, like conversations and actions. So happy to be sharing it with the world, mate. Thank you so much.
1: Andrew, It's an absolute pleasure and a real cracker of a chat, mate. Thank
0: you. That's it for this great conversation with Holden Shepherd. Holden's new book is The Brink. It's out now from text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app wherever you are listening to this. It means a new Final Draft episode every single week with bonus episodes dropping also midweek. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Till then, as always, happy reading. Bye for now.